Hello and welcome to the Mechanics Institute Review podcast. My name is Peter Coles and I am the Managing Editor of Content at Mirror Online. For this episode, we are going to talk to writer Lily Dunn about her project, A Wild and Precious Life, an anthology of recovery stories. Lily Dunn is an author, mentor and editor. Her first novel was published by Portobello Books and she has just finished a memoir about the legacy of her father's various addictions. Her creative non-fiction has been published by Granta, The Real Story and Eon. She is currently studying for a doctorate at Birkbeck University of London and she teaches creative writing at Bath Spa University and co-runs London Lip Lab with fellow writer and friend Zoe Gilbert. Hello Lily. Hello, nice to meet you. Thank you for having me. No, thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. Um, I think we're just going to get started with some questions. So my first question is, you're here to talk about A Wild and Precious Life. Yeah. Um, and I basically just want to know, how did the project get started? How did you start with the project? Um, well, I, um, I found myself phoning around uh, Hackney Recovery Services mm. um, just out of the blue. Um, it was a bit odd. I hadn't done any voluntary work before, but felt that I wanted to give something back at that point. My father had recently, well, actually not recently, but in the last sort of five years died of alcoholism. Okay. And um, sort of looking back and reflecting on it, I think I just felt that I hadn't had any sort of control over his death because it was all quite sudden and tragic. And um, and I think I felt that I wanted to understand um, addiction a little bit better. Mm. Um, and so I started phoning around asking if I could do some voluntary teaching at um, recovery services. Um, and the first place that I phoned was Hackney Recovery Service, which is part of St Mungo's. And um, I spoke to the guy who was in charge of their... Uh, courses that they offered the um, the you know, people who came and used the service, and mm. he said, funny enough, they were looking for someone to oh, teach wow. creative okay. writing. So it all felt quite fortuitous, and I went in and set up this creative writing course, which um, was amazingly successful, and um, I did it for six weeks initially, and we had a very solid group who were became very reliant on it and mm. we had some real talent in the group um, and they wanted me to continue so I carried on doing it and then I thought well actually as it's so successful and I was getting a lot out of it myself as okay. well it was very satisfying I applied for Arts Council funding to carry on teaching it was successful and part of the bid um, was to bring Zoe in to mm. help me teach but also to um, do a nationwide call out of recovery mm. stories because I wanted to get to a point where I could publish some of the work that was being produced in the class. And we came up with the idea of doing an anthology. So we did a nationwide call out. So this was sort of, we talked for, I think the funding gave us another nine months of teaching. Mm -hmm. Within that time, we did the call out. We got a huge amount of really good, high quality poetry and prose back. Um, me and Zoe went through the selection process and, um, how many how many pieces did you get? In, uh, in the uh, probably about three hundred. Wow, that's or a lot. So yeah, and a real mix of kind of you know shorter and longer essays. We extended it out so it wasn't just about recovery from addiction; it was also about mental illness okay. because obviously there's a big crossover. And um, because both me and Zoe are uh, writers mm. and you know sort of come from quite a literary sort of background, we're not really genre writers. We were looking for people who um, approached it from quite a, an, oblique, an oblique angle. So okay. we weren't looking for the confessional recovery story. We mm -hmm. were looking at 
play with form or um, sort of entering into the experience a bit more. Um, so more literary form. More literary, right. yeah. So in a way that kind of made the selection process slightly easier because mm. there was obviously quite a lot of, of kind of misery memoir and, and pretty kind of bleak stuff. But we wanted to elevate it mm. and look for humour, um, just look, look for people who were approaching it from a slightly different angle. Um, and we, we got some fantastic stuff, which was yeah. great. So, yeah. Okay. And, and, and so with that, when you're looking at these pieces and you're trying to decide which one you're trying to get, what was the sort of standout uh, themes that you had? So you said there was sort of humour and... Or was it literary talent as well? Was that what you were Definitely looking for? Definitely more... talent. I mean, the, the main motivation for me was that I had some fantastic writers in my creative writing group at mm-hmm. St Mungo's, but they didn't, and I, I call them writers because they were writing every day, but they were writing as a means of survival. They didn't consider themselves as writers. And I wanted to give them an opportunity to actually kind of think, well, actually, I could do something with this. You know, I could get it out there. I could... Um, enter into the whole sort of publishing world particularly now that online it's so much more accessible and you can get flash fiction published and you know it's not so sort of snobby and and, you know and and restrictive as it it has been in the past and so um, I wanted to um, select people so to have quite a wide range so we we um, we went to some um, published authors Mm -hmm. so we went to um Kerry Hudson, for instance, yep. um, and asked her for a piece. And so she, she gave us a piece, which is fantastic. And hers is really funny. It's brilliant. It's just about growing up and, and how in, in her experience as a, a young girl in, in her family, and she's just brought out her memoir, Lowborn, so you'll be mm. able to read about all of this. But um, She's coming to my local bookshop. Oh, so is she? I'm going to go she's see so her. so lovely. Um, you know, just how to her it was just completely normal, the mm. kind of everyday stuff that she was around which of course when you read it in her brilliant writing it it just seems sort of astounding but Mm. um and we had Maggie Sawkins who we've Mm. got on this podcast she's podcast she's got she's an award-winning poet and John O'Donoghue who is also an award-winning author who I knew so I approached him because he had written a book about um being in an asylum um so I wanted the the more published writers to, to stand alongside total beginners mm-hmm. so that they were kind of shoulder to shoulder. You know, there yeah. wasn't any differentiation. It was all part of the whole experience. Um, and then within that, we had quite a few midlist writers who approached us through the submission process. And they they were a lot of a lot of them from the flash fiction community. Okay. Um, and, you know, writing about trauma and um, you know mental health issues and anxiety and things like that so not specifically uh, addiction but there were a lot of similarities in the way that people were recovering from some kind of blockage in their life or some kind of disruption in their Mm. life and trying to find themselves again you know so that that became a, a theme that we were interested in Okay. So um, we have four pieces of literature that we're going to be read today from four of your uh, contributors. And the first one we're going to hear is Flash Flood by Peter Jordan. Great. It takes a second or two to focus. I'm lying on my bed on top of my quilt. 
I remember falling at the front door, then crawling up three flights of stairs, trailing a bag of broken glass behind me. Then nothing. My phone is ringing. I try to sit up, but nothing happens. I wonder if it's Simon. Simon has been my sponsor for the past two years. I met him in rehab. Like me, he's an alcoholic. But Simon is in recovery. He is a god in his life. He's living the program. He gave me his two goldfish to look after while he's on holiday. He thinks this little act will keep me sober. He's wrong. Before Simon gave me his goldfish, I knew I was going to drink. The compulsion for alcohol had returned. Here lies the paradox. I don't want to drink. I know from bitter experience what happens. But a part of me says that this time I'll be fine. Sometimes I think I'd like to get a little bit drunk. But Simon tells me that getting a little bit drunk is like getting a little bit pregnant. Once I lift the first drink, I'm beat. Lifting the first drink starts a craving like no other. The more I drink, the more I want until I black out and then pass out. I hear music. Shauna is home. She lives in the flat directly below. Shauna looks different every time I see her. Sometimes I walk by her on the stairs, say hello and don't immediately realise it's her. She has that chameleon-like quality that great method actors have. She should have gone to Hollywood. Instead, she's trapped in a room mixing antipsychotics with class A's. She'll put on a track and play it over and over again. Today it's Nana's 99 Red Balloons, the German version. Shauna is stuck somewhere in the mid-80s when she was a child and life held no fears. I remember my first drink. I was 14 years old. If I saw the world in black and white before I took that drink, then it taking it turned everything to technicolour. It seemed I'd found the answer. Drinking took away the fear, that feeling of being less than. All of a sudden I measured up. I felt part off, no longer entirely an outsider. The problem is it never lasted. Within a few years I was a full-blown alcoholic. People say there's a line like something you step over. One minute normal, the next alky. In truth, the line is blurred. It seems things can't get any worse, but I've had rock bottoms before. Simon talks about the time when he decided he'd had enough, the jumping off point. Simon says I should move a muscle when I'm in mental pain. Move a muscle, change a thought. But I can't move. I'm paralysed. I'll play I Spy. I spy with my little eye something beginning with A. Alcohol. There are four empty vodka bottles on the dressing table. I can't see the floor, but I know they're there as well, all empty. I read recently that more people drown in the desert than die of thirst. Flash floods are the killer. It doesn't rain for a long time, and then when it does, people aren't expecting it, and it really rains for days on end, and people just drown. That's what it's like when I drink a flash flood. A long dry spell, and then when it comes, it's a downpour. B is for boredom. I can't see anything beginning with B, but I'm bored to death. And for someone like me, boredom is a killer. It's boredom that got me into this situation, so technically I might, in fact, die of boredom. C is for crack. Not the drug. I'm talking about the cracks in the ceiling. I'm sure I've noticed the big cracks, but I didn't notice the little ones. They look like they've been there for a long time, but I don't think the ceiling will collapse. They're just a part of it. I suppose if you look closely at anything for long enough, you'll see the little cracks. Maybe that's why I'm no good at relationships. 
I worry if someone gets too close, they'll see the cracks. I used to think I was a born survivor. One of those people you read about in Reader's Digest, who get trapped in an avalanche, gnaw their own legs off, then slide 100 miles on their arse to the nearest hospital, and now they have a new career as a skiing instructor. And maybe I was a survivor at one time, but not anymore. Something happened after I crossed that line from social drinking to alcoholism. D is for dehydration. That would be a good one for my mother, died of thirst. When her friends ask over the garden fence with clasped hands what I died of, she'll be able to say he died of thirst. Oh, was he an adventurer? The phone rings again. I bet it's Simon. I fall asleep. When I wake, I have the harsh metallic taste of blood in my mouth. It's late afternoon. The window is closed, but I can still hear traffic. People living their lives, coming home from work, collecting their children from school, doing what I can't do. The thirst reminds me of a time when I was a kid in hospital. For two weeks they kept me on a drip. I wasn't allowed anything to eat or drink. When they took me off that drip, my mother asked what I'd like to drink. I'd been dreaming of cold lemonade for weeks, but I said tea. I'd like a cup of tea. Trying to impress. Always trying to appear something other than what I am. I would do anything to go back to that time and tell my mother I'd like a glass of lemonade. I fall asleep again. When I wake, my jaw hurts. E is for electric shock. My muscles go into spasm. My buttocks, thighs, calves and biceps all cramp up and release. When the spasms are over and they last maybe 5-10 minutes, I'm exhausted. But I find I can move. I turn on my side and manage to get myself semi-upright at the side of the bed. I'm still wearing my clothes. On the floor is the bag of broken glass I dragged up to my flat three days earlier. Every part of my being is juddering. In this fashion, I make it to the kitchen. I catch a glimpse of myself in the long mirror in the landing, but it's not me. It's an intruder, a bearded skeleton who has ransacked my flat. I make it to the water tap and quench my thirst. Then I reach to the cupboard for a chill pill. Diazepam will give me a soft landing, but it's also a muscle relaxant. The tablets are in one of those little brown bottles that have a safety cap to stop kids from opening them. My brain tells my hand to squeeze while turning, but somewhere along the line my hand doesn't receive the signal. A task that would take me 10 seconds now takes minutes. This is how it will be for the next few days. On the bottle it says take one as required. I take four and in a couple of hours I'll take another four. I stand over the sink gripping it for support but my head is still in the room. I know I've forgotten something. And then I remember, of course, F is for fish. I wonder if you could explain about the concept of wildness and how it relates to the anthology. Okay, um, so I... Why did you choose the word wildness in the title? Because it it's quite a provocative yeah. idea when it comes to the idea of recovery and stories, I think. Well, our stories are not just about recovery. They're also about being in a alternate, alternate state, an alternative state. Um, so um, they are—they're not celebrating drugs and alcohol, but mm-hmm. they're certainly acknowledging that that these these things have a place in all of our lives mm-hmm. and. Some people, it gets out of hand. Um, some people manage it. Some people, you know, choose to, to obliterate themselves. Um, 
it was a question that I had over my father's demise uh, always and actually a question that I had when I started the work with the recovering addicts was you know where was his will mm. um, had he intentionally gone out and killed himself was mm. it like a slow suicide or had he just lost his will along mm. the way to the addiction um, and I've now written a book about it and I, I think you know I'm not none, none, none the wiser really but um, I think I quite like the idea uh, it's actually um, Leslie Jameson um, who I think is a brilliant writer um, Kate wrote a book about her own recovery from alcoholism and she's and she said um, that you know some of us just need to test the boundaries some mm. of us need to go over to the wild side and actually we shouldn't be criticized for that you know that some you know as a family member of somebody who's who's died of alcoholism there is there is a there is a moment where you have to give up your your control mm. of, of of trying to save that person so I suppose in the wildness it was I mean it, it stems from a Mary Oliver quote which um, I had quoted to a friend of mine at the time um, which is, uh, tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Mm -hmm. And within that quote, I feel that, you know, that there's so, there's so much that we, we, we're confronted with in our, in our lives and we, there are certain paths that we can take and sometimes those paths can be destructive. Mm. Um, Sometimes we take risks and it pays off. Sometimes we take risks and it doesn't. Mm. Um, and I suppose in the theme of the of the anthology, I was interested in looking at that um, straight, you know, and and being honest. and And I think that's where the strength of the pieces really shine through is that they're looking at very difficult subject matter. They're mm. looking at difficult times in their lives, and they're being very honest and straight about it. Mm. And can I just so is. For the stories that you've chosen, are they? Is it mainly to do with drugs and alcohol, or are there other themes? They're that... mainly drugs and alcohol, mm. but the there are quite a few pieces that are you know related to mental illness and recovery from that. So mm. the um, the other piece that we have a reading from um, from J R Hall is mm. about recovering from post traumatic stress um, or having post traumatic stress. Um, so. Yes, I mean it's it's about it's about facing difficult moments in our lives really and finding a way through. Mm. But I think it's healthy to embrace the wildness sometimes mm. as well. No, I think from my own experiences of uh, when I was younger, I was heavily into drugs and alcohol, and then for the last 10, 20 years, has been a me uh, well, ten twenty years, ten years has been about me trying to recover from that and trying to gain a sort of sense of control over myself again. Mm. Um, because yeah I, otherwise if I allow myself to go down that path I can slip down it very easily that's why I'm vegan and um, teetotal now and I don't you know it's such a it's such a difficult path once you're down that path it's so difficult to come off it isn't well it, it can be but I would I would say that sometimes it's about accepting that part of ourselves as mm. well rather than trying to control it and, and, and sort of put it in a box um, and I suppose that's kind of where my thinking was coming from, um, was that, you know, some of us just have to acknowledge that we have a susceptibility to sort mm. of take ourselves to the other side. Mm. And um, fighting that can actually be counterproductive mm. sometimes. I think it depends. Do you think this anthology will help 
to uh, inform people of that, that it, it, sometimes you do have to accept that side? Does it feel like the anthology is pushing you? No, I don't think so. I think I think the other the other motivation I had with it was really to I mean the the very striking thing I felt when I went and taught this group at St Mungo's was that I went into it thinking that it was going to be a difficult group that mm. you know it was going to be challenging that you know I may be dealing with tricky people and actually my experience was just completely the opposite. Okay. There was they were wonderful wonderful people. They had been through a lot of therapy by the time they came to me they were very used to and comfortable about sort of looking inside at themselves and I think that's what made their work very powerful as well Mm. so they could really get to the heart of the matter and um, and I came out of teaching them just feeling that I wanted to break down that sort of stigma and you know there's so much still I mean it kind of amazes me really um Prejudice, really, mm. against people who suffer from addiction and still around mental illness, and and you know it is an illness, mm. and um, yeah. a lot of people find it very difficult to to get on top of it, mm. and and actually, what I took from teaching this group was that there was very little that that divided me from mm. them, other than the fact that I had more opportunities, I had. You know, I, I perhaps took a slightly different road from the road that they took at a particular time in my life, mm. you know. Um, so in a way, you know, when we start to look around at the family members and the people that we know, we realize that addiction is, is so close mm. to us. It's There are so many people, there are so many coping alcoholics, you know, mm. who basically drink, get through half a bottle of wine a night or you know, and or, or more. I mean, yeah, a bottle of wine a night, I guess, is more of a problem. But you know, and think that they're absolutely fine. Mm. But it's a it's a daily kind yeah. of you know habit, um, and yet we don't call them alcoholics. No. So and I'm and not, I expect there's a there's a class a, thing as well involved. It's in a this. class thing, yeah. yeah, and it's it's an other thing. It's mm. it's 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 much easier to say that that these people are unlike us, so we don't have to face it. Mm. Um, but actually. Uh, addiction is a complete leveler. You know, it, mm. it, it it crosses all classes, all ethnic groups, all nationalities, all ages. It's there's you know, it, it's very it's very um, humbling actually mm. when you realise that. Mm. Okay, so we're now going to hear a poem um, by Maggie Sawkins called Script. Lily's swigging spirits with Bikini Girl in Lightship Inn. Slim Jim spiking it with mystic pills. Nitwit Nick sips his pims. Bikini Girl's dissing it. Fine shrimp pink lipstick. Slicks Nick's lips with it. Winks. Nick's livid. Lifts his fist. Lily sits tight. Mind spinning. Misfits mimics. Bigwigs dimwits imbibing it. Sniffing it. Slim Jim flips, Nick's slinging it, Bikini Girl's high, Big Wig's winging it, Lily's thigh, Kissing, licking it, Bikini Girl sighs, Lily sips tixy licks, Pin pricks, prickly skin, Itching, fixing it, Things shift, Spirits fly, I'm scripting it, Thrilling. <laughs> <laughs> 
isn't it? So some of the authors are, uh, in the anthology had never written before, um, according to the website. And how did you cultivate this idea that they could write and that they had stories to tell? Okay, so they, they, it's not that they hadn't written. Um, okay. As I said earlier, they, they had written and they were writing every day as a, as a means of survival. So, mm. you know, we had some people who would sit in the park and just sort of write about what they saw and they were writing diaries, they were writing songs. And this was part of their recovery? Just part of who they were. Okay. You know, they just they just felt compelled to write, but they mm. didn't consider themselves as writers. So mm. you know, I suppose what what we put in the website is more about published authors or mm. people who are out there as writers. They didn't consider themselves. They didn't have that opportunity. Um, so I, um, they, I, what what one of my main drives in the way that I was teaching and I think what really tapped into um, them and sort of empowered them I hope was that just to to make them see that they had a story I mean you know they had fantastic stories they had had amazing experiences in their lives and things that most people had not witnessed or experienced but it was more about empowering them that their voice their look their, their view of the world their their take on the world was unique mm-hmm. and had value. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you if you start at that very base level, then you're giving them confidence to do something that they are compelled to do. Mm-hmm. And so it's really about switching off the critic, you know, and and also within addiction, it's, it, it can be such a negative cycle. You know, we are compelled to do something that makes us feel better, mm-hmm. you know, take a drug or have too many drinks and then we feel bad about it Mm. you know the the come down the next day the hangover we get into a cycle of feeling negative we put ourselves down we then drink in order to you know obliterate that feeling and so I suppose in a way it was about trying to help them to switch off that critical side they were already working on that within the therapeutic setting which you know is why they were able to really get to the core of what mattered to them but then allowing them you know giving them a, a, a safe space within the classroom where we had I had a regular group of about six who came every week who were all very kind to each other mm. and supportive where they could explore and express themselves mm. we did community we did um, communal writing exercises as well so some of the weaker writers or the ones who were less confident um could write something as part of a group. So there was this sense of the group supporting all the writers, which worked really well, it was wonderful. We did an exercise where everybody got their keys out and, and wrote about what their keys meant to them. Okay. Which of course was you know, amazingly um, revealing mm. of their lives and, and how they felt about security and mm. whether they had a home and, you know, and whether they were threatened by their neighbors. And you know, so stories start to emerge mm. and um, yeah, I mean, it was it was wonderful. And actually that communal poem that we all did, um, they framed, the, the, my supervisor oh, wow. framed and put it up in the reception of the Hackney Recovery Service, which was brilliant. Oh, that's lovely. Is that one appearing in the anthology? No, no, it's no, not, actually. Is that no, sort of... That was, yeah, I left that for, that's for more, there. Yeah. That's more for there. Yeah. What, other, what other sort of activities did you do with the with the students and uh, with the with those you were teaching? And 
would you say that any of them are applicable to um, just any writer that wants yeah, to try and get no, into writing? Yeah, no, no, I mean, I, you know, they were brilliant. And I was, I was teaching, actually at the time, I wasn't teaching at university level at the time, I was teaching um, at Google. Okay. <laughs> so it was just a really kind of extreme yeah. difference. Um, and um, so I was using quite similar material, actually. I mean, you know, I adapted it for the recovery group but they were they were very up I mean I, I taught them beginners techniques mm-hmm. but then when we got the um, Arts Council funding and I got Zoe on board then you know we were a bit more experimental we were a bit more thematic mm-hmm. we did more sort of fun games and we used a lot of literary texts and um, Zoe ran her own workshops with them as well and um, she's quite a different you know she's a short story writer and very imaginative and she bought something different whereas I was much more interested in the sort of realism mm. and um, no they got a huge amount out of it it was brilliant oh, that sounds great mm. okay so next up we're going to hear the aforementioned story by J.L. Hall called Lucky a crackle under my skin a feather on my nape a short circuit, a surge, fear. These are the small bombs scattered under my feet and strewn unseen across my path. A weekly, sometimes daily, charge of fear that is triggered without warning. In daytime waking hours, I can rationalise this. I dig out my mental toolkit and search, calmly and with compassion, for the best aid to contain and neutralise how I feel. To diffuse. At night, when it comes and I'm in bed deep in sleep with my old balding teddy bear tucked under my chin, it devastates. The fear surges then, untethered. My heart races long after I've woken and lie in damp shock with loose, broken limbs. This is the best that I have been. I am lucky. I have recovered, partly, mostly. There is no expected full recovery for complex PTSD from childhood trauma. Trauma meted out then can last a lifetime in these fits and starts. It's a life sentence casually, violently handed down without reason. The brain protects us in childhood trauma. It is programmed to save our lives, to shut down, switch off, freeze and escape when our bodies can't. Children's brains in the midst of trauma cannot process it, nor take it whole and file it in long-term storage, moving to the past. The trauma lingers in the present. It remains unformed and blinded, butting into the walls of an internal maze, back and forth, back and forth, like the victim of a blindfolded prank. The brain may save us then, but we will pay later, when we can at last stop and let go. Once it is finally over, the flashbacks and night terrors begin, just when we are safe from harm. I have had treatment. It was mostly successful. Neither are small bombs where there were explosions. Now there are charges and surges where before there was near annihilation. Now there are cracks, fissures, where before I was obliterated. I should be grateful. But there is no romance to be found here. Trauma has not enriched my life. I'm not a change for the better person who would never have followed such a technicolour path without this. I struggle, and sometimes I struggle every fucking day. I burn with rage and grief and loss and injustice, and it is exhausting. The never sleeping through the night is exhausting. The constant anxiety, the fear of fantastical consequences if X or Y should happen, is exhausting. I am sickened to be so limited in my health, to never work the hours I need to have the life I'm entitled to. 
I'm heartbroken that I cannot have the future that I want to give myself. I'm defeated by always being that one rung further down the ladder with a top just beyond my reach. But this is not pity, this is anger. None of this is my fault. None of these crimes should ever, ever have been inflicted on me. There will never be any justice and it can never be undone. Somehow, somewhere, in the midst of all this unending shit, there is acceptance. There has to be. Fury and regret are shackles to before. I can only live the life that I have now. There is no other. My life must be full and appreciated. I owe this to the child that fought every day to survive. Acceptance is where the healing begins. Being thankful, appreciating the now, the moment as it is. Without acceptance, without healing, there is no more recovery. There is only the terror of the past, again, again, again. So I try, every day. I try to remember that I am lucky. I am mostly well. I am healing and will heal more. Sometimes, sometimes I am happy. In a twist of fate I lived when other children did not. I am here. I am alive. I am lucky. So for my final question, I wanted to ask, to switch things up, I wanted to ask about uh, this non-traditional publishing platform that you've taken to use to publish the anthology, which is Unbound. And and what has that been like as an experience? Because you you said you're published by Portobello Books, so that was a more traditional way of being published. So what has this been like? Um, Well, I mean, obviously with Unbound, it's very different. It's sort of, um, it's kind of an inside-out process or a topsy-turvy process in Mm. that you have to raise the funds first before you get published. Once you've raised the funds, once you've reached your target um, fund, then it's much like a traditional publisher. So okay. that's definitely the appeal, is that once you get to that point... Do you have to be accepted by Unbound yes, so first? Yes, there's yeah. a submission process, selection process. Mm. Um, they were immediately interested in us. Uh, we didn't have any problem with, with having them on board. Um, really friendly, lovely people. Um, we went for quite a, a high target um, because, well, one, one, one reason was because I, I was determined to pay all our contributors. We've okay. got 50 writers um, and that obviously bumped the target up considerably. Yes. I mean, we're not paying them a great deal, but it's, it, I just felt that it was important to pay the mm. writers. Um, and also we went for the whole hardback, proper kind of traditional publication which you can get published by Unbound just digitally and there are ways of keeping the costs down. Mm. So um, what was your motivation for this? Why did you feel like it was necessary to have that because to pay I, them and to have it, that un, to have that bound book? Because it just goes back to what I wanted, which was I wanted these writers to feel proud of, mm. of what they had. I wanted to have a product. I wanted to give them a book. Mm. I wanted I just wanted a book. I wanted mm. this to be on the shelves with all the other books. I didn't mm. want it to be you know, just something that would be viewed online. Mm. It just, I mean, I'm a bit of an old traditionalist. (laughs) You know, and I knew also that Unbound would do a really, really good job. You Mm. know, when when we get to that point where we've met the target, that's where the fun starts, really, because Mm. then, you know, we're going to produce a wonderful book. And I wanted something that we could all be proud of, Mm. you know. And I think the other thing was, you know, we had built up a community of writers and, um, and, you know, increasingly I just felt I owed it to them to, to, to do this. So, I mean, it, it, 
yeah, so there were lots of reasons why they were the best publisher for us, and, and mainly because the production is really high. You know, they're, they're award-winning, they have a really good profile, they are in all the main bookshops, um, but also they do allow you to do to, 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 to do the book you want to do. Okay. So they don't have kind of editorial control like other okay. traditional publishers. So I think that's what makes them quite popular. Okay. In terms of the crowdfunding, it's really slow and, and pretty dire. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> Which is why you should go to unbound. Is it unbound. dot com slash a wild a precious life? Yes. Is that correct? Well, we'll put the link in the show notes. We really do need it. help. We've got. We've 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 now got to fifty percent. Okay. Which is really and how long did it amazing. take to get to fifty? Um, it's taken almost a year. Okay. Um, we've had it comes in fits and starts. You mm. know, we've had a lot of interest. We've had a lot of publicity. Um, we've now got Will Self doing. Oh, yes. He's written the introduction, yeah. which is fantastic. Um, but we really do need some help. Mm. Um, and the wonderful thing about Unbound is that you're not donating, you're pledging for a book. So mm. it basically means that you're buying the book in advance. Mm. So when the book comes to be published, you will get your beautiful copy in the okay. post. And you'll also be invited to all our events and we will be doing more readings and discussing the power of writing and mm. recovery and you know all of those things, some, some fascinating writers. Um, Kit DeWall's Common People has just been mm-hmm. published by Unbound and it, it is, is, is just been brilliant. It's mm. groundbreaking. They've got some excellent writers and it looks so beautiful. Mm. So, you know, I feel like we're, we're in, uh, on a league with them, really. Um, so, yeah, no, they, they are the right people, but it just, it just is a longer process. Mm. And, and harder work. And harder work. <laughs> do you have to do things like this, like a yes. podcast, have to come on and do it? Yeah. Um, but do you, think it, do you think there's any benefits to doing it this way from the traditional realm of way of publishing i think i think it i well i mean of course you can go for a small press um and they are producing brilliant books but they have to be a lot more selective about what they mm-hmm. take on because there's huge risk for them mm-hmm. so i mean this this is a kind of win-win if you oh, if I you see. do yeah. raise the funds it's a win-win because it means that unbound are not risking a huge amount of money which they then possibly won't get back which mm. is you know how publishing increasingly works these days so you know it's it's more a collaborative thing mm. but it, it you know it just and the, the benefit of doing it this way is that you do get a lot of publicity and a lot of hype around the book before it comes out so yeah. that when it does come so you out get a you know. huge build-up before it comes yeah, yeah which is which is a good way to do yeah. it so we're going to listen to our final um, piece from the anthology, and this is Miracle of Sobriety by Maggie Sorkins. You bow before the empty glass that was made to be filled with liquid lightning and cannot consider water as replenishment. So the empty glass remains more redundant than the umpteen empties in the backyard, as the soul goes running on empty to the sanctity of the altar of wine, and the goblet half full with the ruby lightning, the goblet that can, with a single sip, quench the thirst of one without thirst, and set on fire the thirst of another. Well, thank you so much, Lady, for coming to talk to us here today. It's my pleasure. It's been lovely. It really has been really, really good. Um, if you want to help support Lily, you can go to unbound.com slash book slash recovery. 
and there you can also find the link to the um, anthology in the show notes is there any other way they can contact you or get involved in recovery um well on the unbound site so if you go to unbound you'll find our project which is a wild and precious life mm. a, rec- a recovery anthology yeah um so yeah you can do it that way and what about the tiers of sort of um, what can you what can the people get for rewards? Well, yeah, you can pledge for the book, or you can pledge to have a book in a recovery service, which was a very popular one. Um, you can you can also pledge for a creative writing session, paid um, t- taught by me and Zoe um, for you and your friends, or you can pledge to have a creative writing session for somebody in recovery, which is another very popular one um there are there's cover art of the um of the front cover of the book Mm -hmm. there's quite a few different things that you can pledge for so it's just worth going on the unbound site and having a look great so it's not just the book you can get a whole range of things you can also get a signed copy Oh, that's very good. I've, I think I only did the I think I only did the first one because I'm a poor writer. Yes. But I have. To, it's <laughs> I did understandable. The first one. Everything helps. So actually, you can get the digital copy for ten pounds. Oh, that's right. Even, no, I had to get the book. Even that. So you can get hardback for twenty or digital for ten pounds, and it all of it helps. So yeah. Great. Okay. Well, thank you for coming, and uh, I wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much. Thank you to Lily Dunn for taking part in this podcast, and thank you for listening. If you like what we do here at Mirror Online and you'd like to support us, why not check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash mirroronline where we have a ton of rewards aimed at supporting new writers. You can follow us on Twitter at mirroronlinebbk and hear previous episodes of the podcast wherever you listen to them. <laughs>